Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, celebrating 120 years of providing medications, advice, and quality healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC-recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including flu, HPV, Tdap, MMR, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. They also administer vaccines indicated for older adults, including shingles for age 50 plus, RSV for age 60 plus, and pneumonia for age 65 plus. Employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at kinneydrugs.com. From VT Digger, this is The Deeper Dig. I hope that we can learn to be in the hard stuff a little bit more with more grace and ease rather than avoid or try and circumvent it and with our kids not trying to save them from feeling hard feelings when they feel left out when they feel embarrassed when they don't feel included uh, allowing that to exist and helping them process rather than try to save them from it I'm Sam Gilrosen. On today's episode, what to do when your toddler breaks down in tears for half an hour because you peeled their banana wrong. Managing big emotions is hard for adults, so what must it be like if you're three feet tall and still in diapers? Anyone who's been around kids knows they can get overwhelmed by big emotional reactions. Those can run the gamut from despair to rage to laughing fits, sometimes within the same five-minute period. So how can you teach kids to manage emotions in a healthy way, especially if you're still figuring it out yourself? I talked about this with Alyssa Blask Campbell, a Burlington-based expert on parenting, education, and child development. She's the CEO of Seed and Sew, which serves parents, teachers, and caregivers with tools for mental wellness and building emotional intelligence. She also hosts the podcast Voices of Your Village. Her new book, written with Lauren Elizabeth Stobel, is called Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, How to Navigate Tantrums, Meltdowns, and Defiance to Raise Emotionally Intelligent Children. I attended a talk Alyssa gave in Burlington last month, organized by the Dad Guild Group, and a lot of what she spoke about struck a chord with me, both as a father of a three-year-old and just as a person existing in the world, so I was eager to ask her a little more about the topic. I started by asking Alyssa how she defines emotional intelligence. Sure. I appreciate that question because I feel like it's gotten so buzzwordy, but a lot of folks don't know, like, what does it even really mean? Uh, And it's kind of like in the early ed world when people are like, oh, yeah, my kid goes to a Montessori school, but like, you really know what that means. It's just like a buzzword in early ed. Uh, So for emotional intelligence, there are five components. We have self-awareness. We have self-regulation, social skills, empathy, and motivation. And when we're looking at those five, self-awareness is really being able to notice like what is happening inside my body? What is coming up for me? We talk about it with kids as like a volcano when it's starting to build before it erupts. Self-regulation is the ability to regulate the nervous system. So once you notice that building, like what helps you calm? Social skills, the ability to like read the room, to differentiate how I show up at school versus how I show up at home or how I show up in a religious environment versus at my grandparents versus with my friends um, and be able to differentiate those spaces. Empathy, 
the ability to connect with someone over what they're feeling, not necessarily why they're feeling it. Maybe you don't have the same lived experience and you haven't walked that same path, but if you know what disappointment feels like, you can empathize with disappointment. And then motivation being that intrinsic versus extrinsic, never with the goal of strictly intrinsic motivation. We live very much in an extrinsic motivation society of rewards and punishments and a lot of external drivers, but helping kids foster that, like, I'm proud of myself rather than consistently looking outside to say, are you proud of me? Yeah. And the whole idea of the book is obviously predicated on the idea that these are things which need to be taught, right? And and like, that's not necessarily something that people have always known or acknowledged. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I think for a lot of folks, it's assumed that like you hit certain ages or stages and you just get these tools kind of like, yeah, kids probably going to walk and talk at some point. And when you pause and you look around at the adults in your space, we can recognize that a lot of the adults didn't get a lot of these tools. A lot of us are still building these tools. If we weren't taught them in childhood, if you didn't learn, like, what does it feel like inside when I'm having a hard feeling? How do I calm my nervous system? If we didn't learn those, we're not practicing them. And this is what we dive into in the book and in our work. It's like, how do we build emotional intelligence? How do we foster it? That was something I definitely wanted to talk about, which is, you know, for many people, emotional regulation is a challenge like for ourselves, right? And it's something that we're learning how to do continually. And it's like a work in progress. So I'm curious about your advice specifically on how someone can feel like they're effectively teaching emotional regulation while they themselves are also still working on it with themselves and how that can become just not another thing to worry about sort of like, oh, well, now I'm, I'm passing my own flaws or deficiencies onto my child. Sure, sure. Um, Well, rest assured, you are going to pass some stuff along to your kid. All of us are. And the goal isn't that like we do all of this healing and all this work and that our kids have no work to do and they come to adulthood with a full, like all of these tools and they're not building anything. Um, That's not our goal. It's really messy to be in it and building these tools and practicing this while we're building these tools with our kids. And there's not a single human on the planet that's like, oh yeah, I've like fully healed from all my things. And now I'm just teaching my kid. Um, At every age and stage, there'll be new triggers, new things that come up, new biases of like, oh, I was just chatting with a friend of mine who was like, I felt like I had a lot of patience when they were three and four. She has twins. And she's like, and now they're five turning six. And I'm like, you should know better. Like all of a sudden this is coming up where I have less patience. And I was like, totally, it's so normal. And then you're going to get eventually to teenage years and there are going to be different triggers that come up where you're like, oh my gosh, the you should know better will surface in other ways or things like that. So recognizing that it's not something you like do and you get to the end of and you're like, I'm done with all of this work, (laughs) that it's a constant practice. And our method, the collaborative emotion processing method is five components. One is adult child interactions about how we show up with kids and what we say and what we can do with them to help build these skills. The other four are about us. And so we guide you through what does it look like to do this alongside fostering this with your children. 
Can you give a few examples? I mean, both of what you talk about in terms of the parent kid interactions, since I think that's what a lot of people gravitate to immediately, but then also what these other factors are that are that have less to do with those direct interactions. Yeah, totally. So we look at the other four that are about us are self-awareness, that like noticing for ourselves. Um, we have implicit bias. So like really uncovering those implicit biases for ourselves, the age bias coming up, right? The you should know better. Or for some of us that grew up in like obedience cultures where we were we're supposed to be obedient to certain humans. And now when our child is staring us in the face and doing something they're not supposed to, we see that defiance, we see that ignoring behavior, we see those meltdowns, we're going to feel triggered in the moment. There's going to be parts of us that surface and say, hey, this is not okay. This is not what a kid's supposed to do. This is not how they're supposed to show up. And really what they're saying is, is this child going to be lovable and safe if they're doing this? At the end of the day, we all want to be lovable and worthy and connected and belong and feel safe. And so these parts of us are going to surface to say, like, is that happening? And so that's the bias work. And we dive deep into that and how it will continue to surface. Uh, and then we have self-care. This is where we're looking at. It's, it's not something for us that's like an occasional thing you do. For us, self-care is how we nurture our unique nervous system all throughout the day. We get real nerdy about this, diving into the nervous system, the eight sensory systems, looking at what we're sensitive to and then what regulates us. We get to dive in here uh, to help you understand your nervous system and also your child's and recognizing that there are some things that your child is going to be sensitive to that aren't sensitivities for you, or maybe the way your child regulates is different than you. For example, I am really regulated and calmed by touch. I could have a massage for four straight days and I'm like, I want more. I love a hug. I like, like to have a hand on me if I'm having a hard time. And my two and a half year old is dysregulated by touch. And so if he's having a meltdown or a hard time and I reach over and touch him, that further dysregulates his nervous system. What we need in the moment is different. And so we dive into that a little bit in that self-care piece and then in the scientific knowledge portion of uh, the SET method, looking at what is happening inside of our brains, inside of our bodies. We chat about things like mirror neurons and how our nervous systems communicate with each other. If, for instance, my little uh, little guy who's, I just mentioned two and a half, got like the giggles the other day and it's like so contagious. It's the best sound. It makes me smile. It makes me laugh. But when he's having a tantrum on aisle four of the grocery store, the same thing happens where my body responds to exactly what he's doing. And now internally, I'm having a tantrum on aisle four of the grocery store. And so we dive into that neuroscience as well. And then ultimately that adult child interactions. So when we are doing this work, when we're noticing for ourselves what's coming up, when we're diving into our bias work and working on regulating our nervous system, both through proactive self-care throughout the day, but also reactive in the moment, what helps us feel calm, then how can we bring that calm? What does it look like from that scientific knowledge portion? And in adult-child interactions, now we look at, okay, and now how do we respond to the child in front of us? 
Yeah, are there examples of some of the advice you give around those parent-kid interactions, which are where a lot of the flashpoints come up in all of this? Yeah, that's what everyone comes to us for, right? We, in the book, outline five phases of emotion processing, five things that you go through to process an emotion. One is allowing, which sounds so simple and is so hard in practice, (laughs) allowing a child to feel where we're not distracting them out of it, where they, you know, they want to get this toy at the store, this thing at the store, and we said no, and then they're disappointed about it. And we're like, you know, next time you can get this, or we try to make it go away as fast as possible because it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, it's really hard to be with somebody who's having a hard emotion, and then add any public layers on, and we're like, oh my gosh, there's embarrassment, and am I doing this right? Um, We actually, I can give you a real life example. I can give you 7 billion real life examples. (laughs) Um, We went to the Champlain Valley Fair and my two-year-old woke up from nap and we were meeting friends there. And so we were like, oh, we'll just like give him his afternoon snack on the drive over. And so in the car, he's like, we give him a snack and he doesn't eat it. He's like so jazzed about the fair. And we get there and he's like amped up. He's like a little dysregulated, but on that like excited side of things. And he kept saying, I'm having so much fun. I'm having so much fun. And he's going on rides and doing all the things. And then we took a pause to eat food. And he, again, too jazzed, too amped up to eat. At which point my husband was like, what do we do now? (laughs) And I was like, well, buckle up, uh, because at some point there's going to be a crash here, right? We know he's going to get to the point of being hangry. And about half hour later, he is melting on the ground. There's this like grassy area with picnic tables and families are like eating together at picnic tables. And my child is screaming, go away, leave me alone to me and my husband as he gets as close as he can to these families who are like trying to have a nice hang together. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like he's just like fully in meltdown mode. And in this moment, He is fully out of control. And so there's not any, there's no distracting him out of this. There's no, what his body needs is food and you can't make a kid eat, sleep, or poop. And so we're just in this space where I am waiting until he's ready to accept food without punishing him for feeling or having a hard time. And so I turned to my husband, we sat down on the grass far enough away from him, but also where we could see him. And he would every once in a while, like kind of look up to see if we were watching still. He wants to know, like, you're still here. You still see that I'm having a hard time, right? But like, don't come closer, talk to me. And we, I like had some fried dough sitting in the grass there. And we had set for ourselves, like, if in about 10 minutes, he hasn't come down from this um, and isn't ready to like have some food, then we're going to leave and we'll carry him out and we'll get home. And at some point he's going to accept food and we'll move through it. And sure enough, about 10 minutes later, uh, I pulled the, I'm very pregnant card and was like, Hey, husband of mine, can you carry him to the car? And so he carried him and he was not just to be carried. Remember he's sensitive to touch. And so he's flailing and crying as we carry him to the car. And we get him to the car and we get buckled in. And the whole time he's still expressing his dysregulation via cries and screams. And then on the car ride home, he all of a sudden goes, Mama, I need rice and beans. And 
I was like, yeah. And then he started to eat and he just like came back to life. He started to regulate. This is that separation between that sensory regulation and emotion processing. I'm not yet, nor have I at any point in this process yet, been like, well, buddy, it's so frustrating. Or like, this is what's happening for you. Or do you want to make another plan? I'm not trying to problem solve out of it. I'm just allowing him to feel first. And then once we're in that space, we're like, he's allowed to feel, we might pop in one phrase that's validating that recognizes what's coming up for them or what happened. Like, oh man, your belly's really hungry and you're not ready to eat. Or sometimes in a sibling conflict, you really wanted to have a turn with that and your sister is using it. Gosh, it's hard to wait. This is that part where we connect with them. We help them feel seen and understood. And then we have security in our feelings. This is where we know we are safe to feel because we won't feel this way forever. Um, We might pop in a word like, I'm here with you when you're ready to feel calm just signaling to the brain, like, all right, calm exists. Um, I will literally tell my child like, oh yeah, it makes sense to feel sad. Sad doesn't stay for a long time. And just reminding him like you're secure in this feeling because it won't take over. And then we have coping. Coping is what regulates the nervous system. And this is the part that is not a one size fits all. This is where we are pulling in, like, how does your nervous system best respond in the moment and to what? Uh, Sometimes coping is getting that food in, right? It's the rice and beans. Um, Sometimes it's sleep when we have an overtired child. Sometimes it's certain types of movement. Sometimes it's touch. Sometimes it's having a quiet, dark space uh, where we can take a break from stimuli. And we go deep into this in the book too, the different types of coping, how to help you understand what's most supportive for you, what's most supportive for your child. And then ultimately, once we're calm, so in this instance, in the car with the rice and beans, as he ate, and then he started to calm, he like came back to life. And he was like, Mama, when we get home, can we play with tools in the basement? And I was like, yeah. And also I need a minute, right? Like, (laughs) it's like, he just fully forgot what uh, just occurred and he's regulated now. And I'm like, woo, it's draining. And now we're at that problem solving, moving on phase where once they're calm, we can talk about the behavior sometimes, or we might figure out a plan for what to do next. Um, We're problem solving with siblings here. Like you both want that toy and there's only one of them. Uh, I might say at this point, like, wow, buddy, Your body was feeling so overwhelmed or out of control when you were hungry. Maybe next time we can work together so that you can eat before your body gets there. We can make a plan for that. Uh, And then we move on. And just to state the obvious, it's so hard not to like blow through those steps or get there too early. It's so hard because we're like, all right, allowed, check, validated it, check, security check, coping check, let's go. We're ready for it to be done. And a huge part of allowing emotions to exist is on their timeline, not ours. And um, in they won't let you blow through them, though, is the thing. Like As you start to offer coping, they won't be receptive to it if we're trying to blow through them. Or uh, we had a little girl in, in our work who was yelling, no calm. We're like, yeah, she's not ready for that part of this yet. That it really is allowing them to be in the hard emotion. It's the messy hard part for us. And this is something that you talked about a bit in the talk that I attended, which I thought was very interesting, which is obviously like you can sort of control 
your own interactions with your child, but it's a big world and your kid is having lots and lots of interactions with all kinds of people um, within your own family and, you know, who knows elsewhere that may be very different and may be sort of not controlling or thinking about interactions in the same way. How do you think about the parents or the caregiver's role in this big web of interactions and the difference you can make based on just your own way of doing this? In short, your own way of doing this is enough that we all need one human that we feel safe and secure in relationship with, that we can be vulnerable with, whose feelings we don't feel responsible for, that you can break down to, that you can be your messy self with. And if you are that person for your child, that's enough. It's okay if your partner or co-parent isn't, or if the way that your parents or the kids' grandparents show up with them is not in this emotionally supportive way. What the child will learn is that social skills part. They'll learn how to differentiate between, okay, if I'm feeling scared, who is the person that I can turn to that can handle my fear, that can support me through it, that doesn't try to minimize it or distract it or just make it go away as fast as possible for their comfort? They'll learn that internally, just truthfully without thinking about it. Just it becomes a part of their subconscious. And then that's how they'll show up in relationship with different people. And that's okay. I think the biggest part is for us as adults, allowing ourselves to grieve the relationship we maybe envisioned for our child with these other humans. Maybe for yourself as a kid, you wanted to have, you wish you had a certain relationship with your dad or with your grandma. And now you want that for your kid, what you didn't have. And you see it in action and it's not what you hoped for. And now allowing yourself to grieve that, that you'd envision this relationship and it's not what is happening in practice for your child and giving yourself the space to move through that grieving process so that you can allow what is in that relationship and knowing that it's enough for you to be that safe space for them to turn to and process all the things that come up. This is another aside, but I feel like you're pretty deliberate about how you use the word human in referring to to people. And can I ask if there's any sort of logic or intent behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the book's called Tiny Humans, Big Emotions. Yeah. Uh, I, it was really for myself at first when I started doing this work. When I think of them as kids, then different biases come up, right? And so when I can really remind myself, they're humans, they are going to have hard feelings, they're going to have hard days. When they're sick, they're going to be grumpy. Like when they're out of routine, things are going to feel hard. It really grounds me in the reality of they're human, just like I'm a human and we all are humans and it's messy to be a human. It gives me more compassion. And another thing I think that is cool about the way you talk about this and is part, I guess, partially just because you're talking about kids is that talking about mental health or emotional regulation a lot of times is centered around the things that are going wrong. And this is more, well, this is hard for everyone and it's a process and it's like, you know, something that has to be actively taught and everyone is sort of on this, whatever their own journey is towards wherever they're trying 
to get to. And I think that's really cool. And I wish that could be sort of extended towards more of the discussion around mental health that goes on. I agree. And I think like, I think one of the downsides of the discussion around mental health right now is this idea of only feeling good, right? That if I do all these things and whatever, then I'll only feel good. And there's not a human on the planet that's regulated all the time, um, that is always feeling connected. We're meant to cycle in and out of dysregulation and regulation. We're meant to cycle in and out of connection and disconnection. And for us, mental wellness, mental health, um, emotional resilience is really about learning how to be in the hard stuff and what it looks like to regulate and process through hard feelings. And we, we say this at the beginning of the book, but there, our goal isn't that you like read this book and you go through this work and you're like, great. Now everything only ever feels good and calm and chill, <laughs> but rather that like, oh, now I know that I'm not failing when my kid's having a hard time, they're allowed to feel disappointed. When I set this boundary and they're really upset about it, that makes sense. They're allowed to feel disappointed or frustrated about the boundary that I just set. And then we get to move through that together. I get to hold space. I get to teach them that those feelings aren't bad and they're not wrong and they're not failing for feeling them, but instead that it makes a lot of sense and everyone feels them sometimes and you won't be stuck in them forever. And practicing this with kids is most effective when we practice it with ourselves, when we're having a hard time and we're like, yeah, this makes sense. And I'm not going to feel this way forever. And it's not my job or my goal to only ever feel happy and calm. Although those are the easiest feelings to feel, right? It is hard to be in the hard stuff. And it's really welcoming that and saying, yeah, sometimes it is. And it won't feel this way forever. And just the idea that what we call negative emotions do do serve a purpose, like as, as long as you let them serve the right purpose and don't let them sort of spiral you out into some other place like that, I feel like is something that a lot of people just were not taught uh, as kids or, 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 or like for much of their lives. The, what matters is your response to that emotion rather than like the existence of what you might call a negative emotion. A hundred percent. I think a lot of us actually experienced shame around having hard emotions, especially if we expressed them. And there's a huge difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is about the behavior. It's I did something that's out of alignment with who I am and who I see myself as. And shame is I am that thing, right? So I am stupid. I am lazy. I am these I am's are about our character and our identity. And for a lot of us, we experience those as kids. And the language that we use around kids is really important for this, like dramatic or whiny or bratty or spoiled or needy or and versus kind and curious and creative and the ability to fill them with those I am's that become a part of their identity and who they see themselves as then allows for them to make those mistakes and say, oh, I am curious and I made a mistake uh, that that is the difference between guilt and shame, which is really powerful. And I think a lot of us grew up in with a lot of shame around hard emotions. I asked Alyssa what she wanted most for people to take from her work. 
Yeah, I think there are like two big things I hope folks leave this work with, or if you read the book that you're, you leave the book with knowing that one, there really is no perfection in this. It's not the goal that, uh, actually our editor, there was supposed to be a whole nother chapter on perfection. And she was like, totally, we could keep this chapter. Or since you mentioned it in like every sentence of the book, I think it's covered. Uh, <laughs> but I like that feels really, really important to me that folks know that it really is okay to make mistakes. And so much of that work is our own adult work around guilt and allowing ourselves to make mistakes, especially if we grew up in a culture where when we made mistakes, we were punished or we felt shame or we felt isolated. There's a lot of relearning for us there. And the second is that, yeah, there's no world where you read this book and you leave and you're like, okay, everybody's always collaborative and cooperative and calm and kind. And that's how we're always moving through the days <laughs> that also that is not the goal. That's not mental wellness. That isn't emotional resilience. Resilience and wellness for us is really allowing yourself to experience the range of emotions and having a toolbox to move through those emotions where you're not stuck in them um, or falling deeper into them. I hope that we can learn to be in the hard stuff a little bit more with more grace and ease rather than avoid or try and circumvent it and with our kids not trying to save them from feeling hard feelings when they feel left out, when they feel embarrassed, when they don't feel included, uh, allowing that to exist and helping them process rather than try to save them from it. This podcast was produced by me, Sam Gill Rosen, with help from senior editor Natalie Williams. For more episodes, visit vtdigger.org. This is The Deeper Dig. Thanks for listening.